Hello, and welcome to SLAS New Matter, the podcast where I, Mike Tarselli, unravel the tips and tricks of all of our science luminaries we have on our events and our journals. So today we have rarefied air, uh, Professor Jim Collins of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, aka MIT. How are you doing, Jim? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, no problem. Can you do me a favor at the beginning? Can you describe what you do and how your lab runs in 10 words or fewer? So we work in synthetic biology with the goal of creating living diagnostics and living therapeutics. That was pretty darn good. What is a living diagnostic? Living diagnostic, we would define as a system based on biological components, likely inside a living cell, that could be delivered to a patient and or used in an environmental setting to report on the presence of a pathogen a disease state, or potentially a toxic substance of interest. Got it. Give me an example. I mean, people think about pathogens and disease states, and right now, um, to to level set, we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Maybe we can give an example there, or maybe of a more familiar toxin, uh, rubella, influenza, whatever have you. So I'll give two examples. Our early effort in this space was focused on developing a living diagnostic to detect cholera. Cool. Cholera is a gut pathogen that has bedeviled humans for centuries. And we showed that you could engineer a lactis, which is a generally regarded as safe organism that is found in fermented dairy products, to eavesdrop on cholera. So we took a quorum sensing system, so an intracellular signal system out of cholera, and repurposed it, introduced it into L lactis, so that you could then take a pill, a lyophilized pill of L lactis, that could produce an enzyme that could change your stool a different color if you were infected with cholera. And we showed in mice that it worked very well. More recently, we have been building on a different form of living diagnostic that is built around our paper-based platform, where we show you can open up a living cell, take the machinery of the living cell out, freeze-dry it onto paper, and create a whole new class of diagnostics. And we did this initially for Ebola, then for Zika, and now we're doing it to address SARS-CoV-2. That's really great. So I'll ask you about the paper-based diagnostics in a minute, but I got to know the stool color changing. Has that ever been tested in humans and what color? It has not yet been tested in humans. We were exploring setting up clinical trials in humans just before the pandemic hit, and those have been tabled. Second is that we're initially looking at a color change to red because we had an enzyme that was amenable to changing stool to red. That's not ideal for GI tract issues. You can imagine (laughs) in different inflammatory bowel conditions where blood could be in your output. You don't want red to be your indication because it confounded. So we're exploring purple or blue, for example, as an output. Purple or blue. What what a neat party trick. So I I digress. Well, unfortunately, it's not a good party trick in that if (laughs) changes purple or blue, it means you're infected with pretty nasty pathogens. That's true. John Snow would not be happy with you in, no. in London. <laughs> Tell me about the paper-based diagnostics. Is this specifically for emerging economies that wouldn't have access to technology? Or are you looking at this as a more general, you know, man on the street, buy it with your gum and newspaper in a corner shop. Now you have a diagnostic freely available to you. We're thinking of it more generally as an at-home diagnostic. Going back six, seven years ago, Keith Pardee, then a postdoc in my lab, showed you could take cell-free extracts, so the inner machinery of the cell that consists of DNA, RNA, ribosomes, and other molecular machines, freeze-dry them onto paper along with synthetic biology biosensors, store them at room temperature, distribute them at room temperature for up to two years, 
and then sometime later rehydrate them either with water or a patient sample that could be blood and serve to reactivate those freeze-dried elements. And they would now function as if they're inside a living cell. We did this initially for antibiotic resistance. In 2014, we then developed Ebola sensors. In 2016, we developed Zika paper-based diagnostics that were deployed and have since now been tested in Brazil, Colombia, and Ecuador by Keith Partee as part of the clinical trial, and have now been incorporating this technology in various form factors, including a face mask diagnostic for the current pandemic. And walk the listening audience through, because unfortunately we don't have visual aids. When you use this paper-based diagnostic with the cell-free extracts on it, what happens? Color change, viscosity change, the paper dries up at the end. What, What do you see as the output? So it depends on the embodiment. Our initial ones were that you would add the sample to the system and it would change color. We are now incorporating it into lateral flow-based assays, similar to a pregnancy test. Where again, you would introduce your sample. It might be saliva, it could be urine, it could be blood. It is forced through a paper-based now microfluidic system that will give you a number of bands on the output to indicate either a positive test, yes, you're infected, or a negative test, you're not infected. And is the technology suitably, um, I guess, granular that you could put multiple lanes for multiple tests at once? So if you were doing a general screen in, say, a refugee camp or in a disaster area, you could just screen for all pathogens at the same time? You could. So the system is multiplexable. So you can envision running hundreds of such tests on a chip or on a device. It becomes more complicated, obviously, the higher you go. My colleagues, Party Sabetti and Cameron Merbold at the Broad Institute, Uh, recently published an effort where they showed you could develop a a multiple viral detection chip that could, I think, do 160 different viruses, human viruses, in basically one set of testing. And so these things open up tremendous possibilities in both the developed world and the developing world. Holy cow, I I challenge most of our listeners to name 160 human viruses. (laughs) So I'm not taking that challenge. Right, exactly. How did you get into SynBio as a career? Because honestly, I know it's uh, hot and now and people are taking degrees in it, but I'm assuming that during your training, it was not front of mind and you had to sort of find your way there. Tell me a little bit about you, Jim Collins, the scientist, and how you got to here. You know, I I can go back quite to a young age. I I was uh, brought up in a very technical family. My dad's an electrical engineer, my mom was a math teacher and my dad worked in the aviation and aerospace industry and brought amazing things home to uh, us kids to share all different tech and had an electronics lab in the basement, various design tools. When I was young, both my grandfathers became disabled. One lost his vision and the other had a series of strokes. And so whilst I was being exposed to these amazing technologies for shooting stuff up into the sky and shooting stuff out of the sky, I wasn't seeing any technologies being developed to help these two men who I loved very much and played a big role. And early on, decided I wanted to get into what became biological engineering, biomedical engineering, using tech to restore and enhance function. And through the 90s, my first decade as a professor focused on medical devices. Mm-hmm. How could I restore sensory function to individuals who had stroke, individuals with Parkinson's? And then in the mid-90s, got encouraged by two folks in my academic community. One was the chair of my department of biomedical engineering, Charles Cantor, who had been a PI of the Genome Project at Berkeley, and our dean, Charles DeLissi, who had conceived of the Genome Project while he was a program officer in the Department of Energy. And they both encouraged me to think about how I could take my engineering principles, specific knowledge dynamics that I was operating at the whole body level and cell level, down to the molecular level. And they mm-hmm. introduced me to folks like Eric Lander and Lee Hood, who were now thinking about how you could introduce engineering systems level thinking 
on the heels of early output from the Genome Project. This is the Human Genome Project, 2001. This is the Human Genome Project. And, and we looked at it and we're excited about the possibility of reverse engineering natural system. But the amount of data to do so was still really quite scant. And so with Tim Gardner, he and I sat back and thought about, well, as engineers, what could we do? Could we take what's the more typical engineering approach, which is a forward engineering tinkerer's approach, and begin thinking about how you could take biological components and put them together into small circuits? And we and several other labs who were inspired to approach molecular biology in this way launched what became synthetic biology in the very late 90s. And now my lab is very integrated and very engaged in this very exciting emerging field. Cool. And is, is there a break point, would you say, between the sort of, as you're describing it, the pre-human genome knowledge era of synthetic biology, the designment of small circuits, and the really bringing up full organisms from scratch and doing this computationally beginning? Because you said there is the forward approach, the I'm going to tinker with this and see. And then there's the sort of reductive approach of I'm going to start from a full system and decide what I want to bring into it. Have you seen that phase shift occur? And if so, when and by which parties? You know, I I don't know that it's a phase shift. So the early efforts in synthetic biology were focused on small synthetic gene circuits, toggle switches, oscillators, that we and others put forward. And it really was this bottom-up approach. Craig Venter and a number of others throughout the 2000s were really pushing for synthetic genomes. And the idea that you could synthesize entire genomes initially based on endogenous genomes, and then increasing to see if you could strip down an existing genome to the minimal that's needed. And that really was largely pioneered by Craig Venter and his team, and has now since been picked up by others, Jeff Buka, Patrick Kai, many groups that are now looking to do larger scale efforts, both bottom-up larger scale as well as stripped down, whilst most of the effort in synthetic biology is still around these bottom-up approach, including integration with computation. And the early efforts were around integration with computation of small circuits and components that could be used to rewire and reprogram organisms. Got it. Cool. And my gosh, um, what, what a crowd to be involved with at a certain time. Because yeah, a lot of basically- innovative people. Holy cow. So this is going to sound like a funny question because I know you've founded companies, you've got patents, you're members of national academies, you're a MacArthur Genius Award winner, but I'm going to ask you to peg one. What's the most exciting lab moment or professional accomplishment you have to date? Could I pick one? So I'll qualify the article in that sentence. So I will pick one of the exciting moments. Fair. I don't want to pick, it's like you don't have a favorite child. Of course. They're both my favorites. Um, I have so one, so she can one, be mine. <laughs> oh, there you, go. You, you can be not in trouble at your house. So right. <laughs> my favorite moment was when Keith Pardee came to me in 2014 and showed me that he had freeze-dried self-free extract along with synthetic gene networks and that he could rehydrate them and they had retained transcriptional and translational capabilities. That just opened up immediately exciting opportunities in diagnostics, in molecular manufacturing, in educational tool development, educative kit development, and rapid prototyping for synthetic biology. And it violates a seemingly central tenet of biology, right? It's got to be swimming in water all the time or it's not going to be active. So, you know, we were surprised that it could survive the freeze-drying process and not lose in any notable way viability. So that that really was surprising. And you you wonder how many people had tried and hadn't succeeded and or just didn't try. Right. That's amazing. What tips do you have for people who want to come into this space? So who want to achieve what you're achieving or who want to look at the next level of synthetic biology or diagnostics, whatever that is, however you define it. So graduate students, postdocs, new people to the field, what would you recommend they do or learn? 
you know, for the young people, I think it's a tremendously exciting space to be. And I do think synthetic biology will become one of the defining technologies of this century, along with artificial intelligence-based approaches. Only agree. Any young person, whether in this field or others, you know, I would say you have three things to really consider. One is to read as much as you can and or learn as much as you can. So maybe reading's not your best mode to learn. So find as many videos, but it's fine material to really expand your expertise in your head. You got to store that information in your head to make those creative leaps. Two is to try to have as many ideas as possible and to talk about those ideas with others, share those ideas. Ideas are easy. Most Mm -hmm. of one's good ideas end up not being very good when you get in the lab. And too often people aren't as freely sharing these early ideas. They should be to test them out and learn them. Three is, I really think it's important for young people, given how distracting the current world is, to pull back every day and spend some time alone in your head thinking and just daydreaming and giving yourself that time to put together connections between different things you read or watched or learned in that given day or over the past week or over the past year and open yourself up to those periods of daydreaming and being alone in your head to come up with those creative breakthroughs. And this is that Danny Kahneman thinking fast and slow, right? That's the slow. You got to wait. We don't do enough of that in today's world. No, we don't. And to your point about ideas, just quickly, Linus Pauling famously died with several notebooks full of ideas. And he basically said, hey, most of these are crap, (laughs) but some worked really well. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, Any other thoughts you want to close out with to, to let our listening audience know about your lab or what you see for the future of the world? You know, I think synthetic biology for the young folks, again, is a great space to explore because approaching biology as technology, recognizing that we can engineer biology, opens up the opportunity to use this new field to address major challenges facing humankind, including challenges of health, challenges of food, challenges of water, challenges of energy, and challenges of environment. And there's so many possibilities. I wish I was 19 years old again at this stage because there's so much to be explored, so much to be discovered, so much to be developed. Well, that's why you have two kids, right? They can both be synthetic biologists. Right. Yes, I encourage <laughs> them to find their own path, and I think they're doing a good job. Great. We thank you very much for your gift of time. We want to let you go back out there and save the world. So without further ado, distinguished professor Jim Collins, thank you. Thanks, Mike.